0: Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. All right, today we have the story of Specialist Ty Carter. Carter was serving with Bravo Troop, part of the 3rd Squadron, 61st Cavalry Regiment, rolled up under the 4th Brigade Combat Team, 4th Infantry Division. And the time period we're going to talk about is in October of 2009 in Afghanistan. Carter and his unit would take over an outpost, a combat outpost, or COP, uh, named Keating. So COP Keating, with a little outpost named Fritch, was set up in Nuristan province of Afghanistan. That's the northeastern part of Afghanistan. And they would occupy this area in, in 2009. So Nuristan is right next to Kunar. It's a very kinetic area of Afghanistan. It's right on the border with Pakistan. There's easy travel routes in and out of Pakistan into Afghanistan. It's a very challenging terrain to... Uh, take, I guess is a better way to say it. It's an easier terrain to defend than it is to take. And the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Afghan forces throughout history have holed up in Nuristan and Kunar and in some of these deep valleys for decades and, and probably longer. Now, what makes some of these valleys so indefensible is there's very limited access in and out. So the, the valley walls are very, very steep, not anywhere near able to have a road on them, for instance. So vehicular traffic has to be at the base of the valley with steep mountains coming up each side. There's nine times out of 10, some sort of water feature down there at the base of the valley, just like there is around the world, right? Um It may be a river, it may be a stream, maybe a creek, it might be a a dry creek bed for most of the season. But nonetheless, there's going to be some sort of water feature down there that's going to define how a road, as best we can define a road, or as best we can call it a road, moves through that valley. Now, there are people living all throughout these valleys, and that's important because the war in Afghanistan, the, the trying to, you know, displace Taliban influence around the country and and help support the Afghan government. So we're the people. We need the support. We, the, the United States and our our Afghan partners need the support of the people all around the country. And it doesn't matter if they're living in a city center or out in the middle of Kamdesh district in Nuristan province, away from everything. They're they're still a critical part of the country of Afghanistan a critical part of of the government a critical part of of that society. So you can't just ignore people because they're not close to city centers. But getting there is going to be a challenge. It's not going to be as much of a challenge for the Afghans because they're used to it. These roads in and out of these valleys often have no issue to support a motorcycle, usually no issue to support small trucks. But the U.S. military doesn't roll on motorcycles and small trucks. We have big vehicles. We have Humvees that are wide and heavy. Heavy is a big part here. These roads, they're rarely paved. And they fall off so steeply on some sides that you risk vehicle rollovers. As in the vehicle, part of the tires slide off the side and the vehicle tips. And soldiers are so strapped in that, that rolling a vehicle over can be, well, rolling any vehicle over can be deadly. In fact, that's how the, uh, the outpost is named is for a Lieutenant Keating that was killed in a vehicle rollover as they were operating in this, in this general vicinity. Cop Keating that bears his name was built or construction started in 2006 and it was, it was built up shortly thereafter. It is the middle of nowhere. It is um, from the nearest air base, about 85 miles. I think there were smaller um, helicopter landing pads. Well, it's not that you need a pad. It's, it's you need a, a refueling and rearming location, maybe where aircraft and pilots could be staged overnight. I, I think there were maybe a couple closer, but from one of the major ones, Jalalabad, it's about 85 miles away. This area, Keating and Kamdesh district, sits about 15 miles from the Pakistan border. Now that's if you can just fly straight over the mountains and don't have to walk directly, but it's, it's some nasty terrain, but the people matter. And if the people matter, then we need to have some sort of presence. Again, we, the United States and our, our Afghan allies. So that base is built in 2006, but by 2009, it's determined that now, I I guess I, the decision may have been made earlier. The base was supposed to be abandoned, supposed to be given back to the the maybe local police or just destroyed outright, that decision was made and it was supposed to take place earlier in 2009 for a lot of reasons. But one of the concerns, and this is one of the controversies around what is known as the Battle of cobb or the Battle of Camdesh, either one of those are going to be referring to the same thing here. And that's where um, Specialist Ty Carter and Staff Sergeant Clinton Romaché would be awarded the Medal of Honor or actions for which they'd be awarded the Medal of Honor. It's a very, very controversial base. The reason for that is it sits in the bottom of a valley. On the video here, I'll put up a picture looking into Cop Keating. You can look, you can see the entire base. There's no ceiling on American outposts in Afghanistan. So when you have the high ground, you can look down and watch the Americans walking around. And now to be fair, in this case, there were also Afghan soldiers and there were Latvian soldiers there working with the Afghan military. I'll probably continue to just say American because I'll I'll, um, I'll probably just continue to say Americans. We're talking about Carter today. But nonetheless, it's not hard to see this. And when it, it doesn't take a strong military tactician who studied combat and warfare for, for decades to look at this and say, maybe that's not the best place to put an outpost. And hey, what good are those walls if the enemy can see over the top of them and shoot down into the base? But we run into the challenge in a conflict like this where the goal isn't to build a fortress. The goal is to be amongst the people. And we run into conflicting, conflicting ways of going about that. We could build a mountaintop fortress in Kamdesh, Could have absolutely from day one. And this battle, cop heating, wouldn't have been a thing. But what good is it sitting atop a mountain if you have no interaction with the local population? It Then all of a sudden you're just out there building a fortress. And great news, it's not going to be attacked or not going to be successfully attacked, but you're wasting your time because you're not working towards the long-term goal of, of winning support from the, the local population there. The reason we're looking for local support is this is a very heavily trafficked route into and out of Pakistan, well, between Pakistan and Afghanistan for both fighters and equipment. So the goal is, remember, at no point is the United States planning on being in Afghanistan forever. The The time of when we're going to be able to step back and hand it over to entirely Afghan control has constantly shifted throughout the conflict. But always in the back of our minds is how can we hand this over to local Afghan forces. And one of the ways to do that is if we can have the support of the population on the ground saying, Hey, don't, you can't traffic firearms through our village because we support, you know, the government in Kabul, or we support the local police and we can't have you doing this. It it reduces the need to have American soldiers there. So we have to be amongst the people, but being amongst the people in Kamdesh and in a lot of areas in Eastern Afghanistan, to be fair. Not very many as pronounced as Kamdash. Being amongst the people means that they are incredibly vulnerable to attack. And in President Obama's presentation of the Medal of Honor to then Staff Sergeant Ty Carter, he uses a phrase that I think is worth the repeating here. He says, these soldiers were asked to defend the indefensible. I mean, they're literally sitting in a bowl. And anybody can come from these hilltops around and shoot down on top of them. That's a very, very hard position to be in. Now, for the years leading up to the major attack that we're going to talk about, there's probing attacks. A probing attack is designed to learn what the enemy is going to do. So you might have a soldier, you might have a Taliban fighter fire from a hillside, maybe fire an RPG, or even just a few rounds from an AK-47. You get to see how do the Americans react when bullets start flying a smart enemy is learning the Taliban are very smart they they don't we don't often give them enough credit in a lot of cases but they they are uh, a very persistent and smart enemy and when you give them the opportunity to learn they're gonna do that and they spend three years learning developing planning and coordinating a major attack. see it's a to overrun an American base would be a huge. PR victory for the Taliban. Remember, throughout this conflict, it has, especially by 2009, I guess I should say, there was was overwhelming American support for such a long period of time. But at some point, we as a country get tired and it's fair. This is going on for a long time. And the Taliban know that they don't have to defeat us. They just have to outlast us. And you know, there's a lot of ways they can go about doing that. We saw in some cases where they just melted back into Pakistan or back into the population and would wait us out. And that wasn't moving very fast, so they would step up attacks. But there's also, what if they overrun an American base? What's, what are the people in Chicago going to say, in New York, in Dallas? Are they going to say, wait a minute, what are we doing? Do we even need to be there anymore? The Taliban in, in many cases are banking on the fact that we're not going to say double down, let's get after it, but rather enough's enough. We've been there eight years now by this point, 2009. Let's go on and get out of there. So they have the opportunity for years, for three years to watch this base, to develop a plan of attack. And they've got a pretty good chance of overrunning the base if they do things right. The morning of October 3rd, A few hours before, as the sun is coming up on the morning of September 3rd, the Taliban move into the area. There's going to be an estimated 300 Taliban fighters. The numbers there vary. And we're at a point now with when we talk military history in Iraq and Afghanistan, we don't yet have the luxury of asking the enemy. You know, that's something that we've been able to do even in the Vietnam War now. We can interact with the people that we were fighting and really dial in, hey, what was happening during the Battle of Idrang? Who actually gave the orders during the Tet Offensive? We're not there yet with Iraq and Afghanistan. So we're going to use the numbers that are the U.S. military best estimates. But as we go forward, these will probably be, hopefully, I guess is a better way to say it, refined to really paint a better picture from both sides. Because we have one side, we don't have the perfectly clear picture from the other side. What we do know is that an estimated 300 Taliban fighters move into the hillside surrounding Cop Keating. They're looking down on the Americans as they're sleeping and awaking for their day. They ask, they they ask, they force the locals to leave some of their homes and, and areas around the outpost. And this bowl that's looking over Cop Keating turns into a, it's a, it's just a pure on war zone where the Americans are there trying to interact with the people. And the morning of October, Third, 2009. That is that is out the window. There is not building rapport. There is pure combat about to open up. Now, because the Taliban have been able to watch for so long, they've been able to recognize certain areas of the outpost, and they see that there are these three or four different areas that hold American gun trucks. These are Humvees, up armored Humvees with varieties of crew served weapons on them. It might be a 50 caliber machine gun, big machine gun, big bullets long range, a Mark 19, uh, grenade launcher, firing 40 millimeter grenades up and down the hillside, incredibly deadly, maybe 240 machine guns, kind of a medium machine gun. Um, there's going to be optics that help the Americans see, uh, far up into these hillsides and, and, and down the valley. The reason that the Americans have these gun trucks set up in these security positions are because remember cop Keating's going to be closed. So we can't put too many resources into it. We don't want to build up a a permanent fortress. It's never going to be permanent, especially now. We know that it's going to be closed. So, hey, instead of putting in a permanent uh, tower on the north side, on the south side, on the east side, just park a truck there. Your guard position for that corner is going to be in a truck. Talk about temporary. Now, it can be effective. I don't know that it's more or less effective when you're getting shot at from above. There's not very much that's effective in that, in that category. But nonetheless, it speaks to the fact that this is a temporary base and the soldiers are fighting with temporary fortifications. The Taliban are watching and recognize what these gun trucks are, where they are, and the movement of soldiers to them as soon as the fight kicks off. These are going to be the most effective weapons to repel any sort of attack on the base. These heavy weapons, as well as a few others, Mortars. There's a mortar pit at Copkeeting, Keating and there's a mortar pit um, up the hill a little bit at an outpost known as Sprich. And immediately as the Taliban attack kicks off, they don't just start firing randomly into the American base. They open up on the heavy weapon systems. And we've seen this time and again when the Taliban have the ability, well, when any enemy throughout history has the ability to plan and, and coordinate an attack Why not try to knock out the thing that's going to do the most damage to you? Immediately, their opening salvo of RPGs, recoilless rifles, mortars, heavy machine guns open up on the gun trucks, the mortar, and the two mortar pits, both at Cop Keating and OP Fridge. The idea with the mortar pits, rather than necessarily destroy a mortar tube like you could a truck, is going to be just to hit it with so much fire that the soldiers in that pit aren't able to utilize the weapon system, which is not a, not a bad strategy on their part. And for what it's worth, for a, a good chunk of the time here, very, very effective. The Taliban opened fire, and it is a volume of fire that's not been seen yet by this unit in the Afghan war. And arguably a volume of fire that hasn't been seen in that conflict before or after. It's a couple things. It's the number of Taliban fighters. Since the 2001 invasion, the Taliban stopped doing these large-scale attacks. American air power has been so overwhelming that it hasn't been worth it. They've lost too many men. They're not trying to fight a war of attrition. Attacking a base with 200 is, is, is risky. But that also has to do with the position that the Taliban are set in around this bowl. Everybody can shoot down into the American positions. The Americans, if you're down there at the bottom, can get shot at from four sides, more, 360 degrees all around, they can get shot at. So that means every one of these Taliban fighters can pour fire into the American position and they're doing it right away. The hillsides light up with fighters in every direction. Their soldiers killed very quickly, soldiers wounded very quickly in the engagement. And... I'm going to bounce back and forth a little bit here between the battle, which we could talk about for hours, and Specialist Ty Carter. So Carter awakes to this attack. This group of soldiers has been in contact almost daily since they've been out there. So gunfire and RPGs, there's nothing new to this group. The volume is saying something. Carter runs out and gets to work right away, recognizing that these crew-served weapons are going to be crucial to the defense of the outpost. He immediately picks up ammunition and starts running to resupply some of these gun trucks. He makes a couple trips, but at one point gets there and the volume of fire is so incredibly heavy that he gets inside the truck for some level of cover. Now, once inside the truck, there's the 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 gun has been knocked out. This truck now has five soldiers inside of it. Because as the battle has raged, people are trying to get out of the open terrain. There's bullets, RPGs, mortars flying everywhere. There's soldiers dying left and right. Get into some sort of cover. There's not a lot of places where there is that cover on all sides. You think of the, the buildings that are out here. They're not made of concrete necessarily. There might be sandbags and parts of them, but a lot of them are plywood, which means bullets can go through. Again, temporary outpost. We're going to be gone before too long. Carter's inside the truck and there's a handful of soldiers in there with him as they are sitting in the truck. Um, the group of soldiers in there are going to be, uh, let's see the name of the soldiers, Carter, Galagos, Mace, Martin, and Larson. And they decide, the group decides at one point they need to get out of the vehicle. It's pinned down. Again, the Taliban are focusing their fire on these vehicles, um, knocking them out as best they can. The vehicle is, the, the weapon system is inoperational and they decide it's time to get out of here and go to a more defensible position. Now, this is a time in the fight where the Taliban are not just firing from above, but they're maneuvering on the outpost. So they're making an attempt to overrun the base. So you can't just sit it out in a truck, not that any of these soldiers had any intent to do that, but They had to get somewhere where they could fight back because the Taliban are, at this point, almost inside the wire. Galagos and Mace get out of the truck and try to make a move to a more defensible position. But the incredibly heavy volume of fire, as soon as they exit those vehicles, the Taliban train their weapon systems on these two and very quickly kill Galagos and wound Mace, who falls to the ground, wounded, and stuck out there in the open with bullets landing all around. So let's move back to specialist Ty Carter, who's sitting in the truck and just watches as these guys exit the vehicle. And as soon as they get out there, a wall of gunfire knocks them both down. At this point, it would make sense for anybody to say, we can't go out there. We have to find something else to do. But without hesitation... Without that thought, or maybe he had that thought and he just acted anyways, Carter talks to the guys in the truck and goes out to retrieve the wounded soldier. He moves under this incredibly heavy volume of enemy fire landing all around, moves Mace back to a more secure location and treats his wounds to stop the bleeding as best he can on the spot. You know, immediate aid. Stop it. Stop the bleeding right now. Now, that by itself... He just went into the area where everybody's dying to pull out his wounded brother. Not that he's ever thinking of stopping there, but that by itself is an incredible act. But instead, he picks up a radio from the fallen soldier, Gallegos, coordinates with the rest of the units on the base, not very many men, right? Um, not very many still able to fight, but there are. Coordinates for some suppressive fire, gets a litter and with, I believe it's with, uh, with Sergeant Larson at the time, but one of the other soldiers, they pick up the litter and run through enemy fire. Again, the incredibly heavy volume hammering the ground all around runs through that to deliver the wounded soldier to the aid station. The soldier's still alive, mace is still alive. And the goal is to get him to that aid station, get him with the medics, get him with the, um, the medical professionals there as best they have at cop Keating and to start to coordinate a medevac to get them out. Now, again, and this is, this is the case with these Medal of Honor recipients over and again, right? You, you have an event and you say, man, that's crazy. That's the above and beyond. So now we've got Carter multiple times running through the kill zone to keep these guns up and running to beat back the enemy as best they can running into the kill zone to recover a wounded soldier and then carrying that wounded soldier back through that kill zone for over hundred meters to an aid station. That by its, every one of those by itself is an incredible act, but he's not done. He gets right back into the fight. Now this fight would rage until that evening, about 45 minutes after the initial volley opens up, the Taliban breached the wire and start to set fire to the buildings inside the base which means that before long, the Americans, Latvians, and I don't think there were any Afghans in this particular group. There's a lot of controversy around, maybe controversy is not the right word, frustration maybe with the Afghan soldiers at this specific outpost that uh, fled rather than fought. And that's not the case across Afghanistan and not the case for the entire Afghan military. But this specific group here at this specific time, Um, I believe the entire group dispersed into the hillsides if you will. So before long um, before long Carter and and the remaining Americans that are alive regroup into a small few areas kind of Alamo positions within within Cop Keating and famously then Carter and Staff Sergeant Clint Romache and the rest of the group uh, push back out to retake Cop Keating. That is how they spend the rest of their day in deadly close quarters combat, killing Taliban fighters inside the wire. A nightmare. Um, they're recovering their wounded. They're well recovering wounded as they can. Recovering the killed and fallen American soldiers around the base as this goes on. Eventually, American forces land at OP Fritch and start making their way down to reinforce. American air power eventually comes on station. And starts hammering the hillsides, both fixed wing aircraft dropping bombs, conducting gun runs, and then Apaches, Kiowas, and the sort of, I'm not sure there were Kiowas here, actually. Definitely Apaches. Um, either way, it took a while. And the end result of the battle, the end result of the Battle of Camdesh, Carter would survive. The end result was eight Americans killed and an estimated 100, and, well, eight Americans killed and 27 wounded with an estimated 150 Taliban killed. Now, the reason that this battle, you know, we could almost do a whole episode just on this battle, as you can kind of see, but one of the reasons mm-hmm. it was so effective is the Taliban were so quick to get inside the wire that it reduced the Americans, um, you know, strength. One of our major strengths, air power, having Apaches and A-10s and F-15s overhead to drop bombs and, and gun runs and, Destroy the Taliban as they mask. but once they're inside the the outpost, I mean, look, no, it's be really, really hard for an American pilot to drop a bomb inside an American outpost. and who can blame them? How many times do you have to confirm do you have that right before you actually release the munition? and or even a gun run with the Apache, a thirty millimeter gun run. how 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 much information do you need before you are confident that that person you're shooting at, is not an American because it's inside the wire. That's So that was the Taliban goal, get inside the wire, get inside quickly, and they did. Um, and it took the bravery of men like Specialist Ty Carter to push them back, to retake Cop Keating, and to seal off the wire once and for all at the end of the battle that would last throughout the day. Now, shortly thereafter, like within days, the outpost... I believe it was in the days it was very very shortly thereafter the outpost would be closed down and bombed by Americans after we uh, pulled the last of our soldiers out just to completely destroy the position but it was a um, again to go back and use the president's words we asked the impossible so we asked we asked soldiers to defend the indefensible and this is the outcome. so the position was could not have been held should not have been held certainly against those numbers but it was because of actions of people like Ty Carter that they were able to hold on and eight Americans killed is a horrible, horrible loss. But if we didn't have people like this stepping up and keeping the machine guns moving and, and, and carrying wounded across the battlefield as needed and coordinating counterattacks and retaking the outpost, that number would have been higher and could have been the entire American contingent on the base, could have been in the fifties, could have been in the sixties. Now we're talking about a whole different type of of loss. Now, a couple things to, to mention here, as we wrap it up, there's a few months prior to this is I believe in June, June of 2009 is when an American soldier, Bo Bergdahl goes missing off his base. And there have been a lot of little reports. And I don't know how substantiated it is that one of the reasons there wasn't sufficient firepower and sufficient. Um, you know, overhead coverage for the men at Cock Keating was because assets and men were tied up looking for Bergdahl. The timeline fits. It makes sense. I don't know that it's a direct result of that, but it's it's hard to discount it because it's at least happening in the same general period of time. The second thing to wrap up here is Carter would stay in the military until two thousand fourteen, till two thousand thirteen. He would be awarded the Medal of Honor, um, excuse me, awarded the Medal of Honor in thirteen. Would leave the military in two thousand and fourteen after deploying again to Afghanistan, mind you. And today works as an advocate and a, a champion for the cause of soldiers and service members of all branches working through post traumatic stress. In fact, one of his big movements, it's really cool, is removing the D disorder from post-traumatic stress, talking about how uh, um, just ways for soldiers to kind of work through that. But nonetheless, the story of then specialist Ty Carter, now Staff Sergeant Ty Carter, doing everything he could to defend the position and save his men during the deadly battle of Kamdesh in October of 2009 will be awarded Medal of Honor.